Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Communication Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Birma. Perhaps no form of popular art has appeared poised to resist subversive sexual themes as the television sitcom. The sitcom status as a haven of an idealized, idyllic post-war cultural status quo seemed to immunize it from any dissonant subtext. And yet, Tyson Pugh writes that the sitcom's dogmatic insistence on an earnest innocence was doomed to fail and that the weight of this strain reveals itself under close scrutiny. In his new book, The Queer Fantasies of the American Family Sitcom, published by Rutgers University Press, Pugh looks at six beloved sitcoms throughout television history in a way you have probably never viewed them before. Pugh writes, quote, Sexuality and queerness can never be banished from family sitcoms, but instead percolate throughout various storylines that attempt to quell their disruptive force. I talked to him about reading between the lines of these treasured television favorites. Joining me now is Tyson Pugh, author of Queer Fantasies of the American Sitcom. Tyson, welcome. Thanks for joining me. No problem. Happy to be here. So tell us about your background. Uh, Your doctoral work and some of your teaching is in medieval literature. Um, So how do you get from there to looking at American sitcoms? Uh, That is a challenging question to answer coherently. <laughs> uh, I, I got my PhD in medieval English literature, and uh, I've always been interested in depictions of gender and sexuality in literature. And so um, I started uh, my research career looking at gender and sexuality in medieval literature, but uh, it's, it's spread. So I've, that was my roots, but the interest and gender and sexuality has expanded to other time periods, other genres of literature, and in this instance, uh, family sitcoms, which I just thought was a really ripe topic to think about how uh, a genre that's supposedly not interested in uh, sexuality would find it creeping into its storylines in some unexpected ways. And I think you could say in all seriousness that American sitcoms in some ways are a contemporary cultural literature that tells stories of significance to the culture in the same ways medieval stories did. Oh, sure. I mean, um, I think a lot of people define themselves on the family sitcoms they grew up on. And so definitely for my generation, it was the Brady Bunch. And I can meet others of my generation who have photographic memories of everything Jan and Marsha and Greg and Peter did. And those are just etched in our brains. And I think it's true for each generation before and after that those were the shows they watched. And so they really informed how they saw America, how they saw family relationships in particular, but also wider issues of the culture that were, even if they were only touched on tangentially in the show. I was going to ask you about some of your memories growing up and watching sitcoms. What were some of the other sitcoms you watched, and how do you look back now at your viewing of those shows then? Uh, Let's see, what else did I watch? There was lots of Leave it to Beaver and Happy Days. Um, Those were probably the two other big ones, The Munsters and The Addams Family. All the things that were on syndicated repeat, um, 
So come home from school, get a snack, and turn on the TV. It was uh, that kind of generation. Um, I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question? How do you look at those viewings now? I mean, you mentioned that we look back with nostalgia. I I know I do. We're going to talk about the Cosby Show. For me, some of my most nostalgic television watching moments were watching the Cosby Show with my family. Right. Um, And we'll talk about some of the problems and complexities of that show and the Brady Bunch and others, but... um, are we allowed to have this nostalgic ideal of this time when we were watching these shows? Because as you say, they were they were sending, in some ways, they were sending messages of an ideal that could not be realized right. and maybe should not have been mm-hmm. realized. Is that fair to say? Right. Oh, I think that's fair to say. Uh, and that's the danger of nostalgia. Nostalgia kind of wipes, you know, wraps us up in this view of our childhood and of our past and kind of an idyllic sense. But we have to be careful to, to recognize its pleasures, but also its... Uh, discontent and what it's, you know, leading us to, to gloss over. And so what's interesting in looking over these shows from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and so forth is they did engage with a lot of issues, but very peripherally, very tangentially. So, you know, we don't want to lose our, our critical vantage point just because we like the show as a kid. But I think it's important. I mean, I think that's true of so much of children's literature, children's culture. Um, you know, this more recent generation has uh, grew up with Harry Potter, and a lot of the same issues are occurring there, where in many ways it was very forward-looking, but then people are taking a new look at Harry Potter and seeing some of its limitations a bit more sharply. But uh, I think you can you know, keep the good while acknowledging that uh, the limitations as well. Uh, no, no book, no cultural text is perfect, and so uh, you know, a critical eye is always necessary. All right, so that's why we need this book. And it's been a while since a book title stopped me in my tracks as much as this one did. The Queer Fantasies, oh, the queer fantasies of the American Family sitcom, um, it struck me immediately as a contradiction, uh, which, which drew me into the book. Um, but you introduce queerness as a lens, a critical lens through which to look right. at these shows. And you talk about, you quote theorists who talk about surface versus symptomatic readings of the text. Can you explain right. that? And, and what's the difference between themes that were there and themes that we read into them when we put on this lens? Right. Okay, a surface reading that, you know, looks at the, the, uh, the, the surface of the text. What is the story about? Who are the characters? What is the plot and all of that? A symptomatic reading looks for often what is not shown, but what's nonetheless present. So what's on the margins of the storylines? What can be addressed only by, you know, uh, innuendo or such like that? So I think thinking about surface versus symptomatic readings is a really valuable way of uh, looking at all sorts of texts, not only literary texts, but, you know, uh, movies, pop culture, video games, all of these different things. And so the, the surface level, especially for children's media, is often somewhat insistently innocent but that's what uh, really drew me to this project is that, you know, as much as people kind of have this view of the Brady Bunch, and that was the first chapter I wrote was the Brady Bunch one, as this, you know, insistently normal family, there were all of these moments in the show that suggested otherwise. And, you know, and one of the things to think about as well as with children's media is that it's, for the most part, created by adults. And so we have this disjunction between the creators of the media and their audience. And so what the creators themselves might enjoy might be something that the consumers or the imagined consumers wouldn't understand, wouldn't be, you know, uh, perceptive of at that point. 
And so that tension, I think, is a really fertile area to, to look for. What do the uh, creators of the media maybe sneak in or, you know, just only acknowledge in a symptomatic but not a surface way? So you talk about chromonormativity. Um, what is that, and how does the structure of the sitcom sort of inevitably start to push against chromonormativity? Right. Chromonormativity, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, is the idea that uh, people expect time to work in a normative fashion, that time will reflect the normative values of an era. But in many ways, that's just not the case. And there are, you know, just any, any way that we think of an, uh, of an epic or a, a period of history uh, there might be a reading of it that's the stereotypical one, but that's not really true once you start to study the period. And so the 1950s is a really good example of that. It's often thought of as a very conformist time, the Eisenhower administration, and, you know, uh, before the 60s. And so the 60s are seen as the radical time. But there were so many cross-currents in the 50s as well. So chromonormativity might suggest that we would look at the 50s only through that lens of, you know, the normative view, instead of thinking about what are the, uh, what's being uh, hidden by that dominant narrative. All right, so let's look at these shows. You have a chapter each on okay. six sitcoms, starting with Leave It to Beaver. And uh, yep. before, as I turned to that chapter, I thought this would be the tallest mountain to climb, because I thought there could not <laughs> possibly be yeah. anything subversive in Leave It to Beaver. Um, but you start right. by looking at the character of Beaver and his prepubescent effeminacy, his aversion to the opposite mm-hmm. sex, which I suppose is natural to prepubescence generally. Sure. Um, but you note how Ward, the father figure, uh, looks at that with considerable alarm. Um, and he yeah. says... Quote, when a boy his age suddenly says he likes dancing school, he's either covering up for something he's done or he's downright abnormal. So here is Ward Mm -hmm. calling out homophobically uh, Beaver's gender identity or or hints of a possible gender identity. Um, And that suggests that it's destabilizing the whole operation. Or is Ward restabilizing it by calling it out as a threat and something that can't be allowed to stand? Well, it's it's both, right? I mean, he's he's destabilizing it and, you know, uh, alerting the audience that this is not the path he wants to see for his son, but he's also calling attention to it. And so there's there's no way to police it entirely. And I mean, it's it's one of those recurring moments throughout the show, especially in its early years, beaver and dance. And so, you know, when you put all of those segments together, how uh, the other characters see it, how Beaver reacts to it, how Ward reacts to it, how June reacts to it. It becomes this little, you know, uh, I mean, crisis is too strong, but it's a recurring scene of concern about Beaver's development into proper masculinity. And, you know, again, it could be presented as fully normative, as fully chromonormative, if we want to use that perspective, that he would go through this phase and then mature out of it. And for, you know, for the most part, that's the trajectory of the series. Uh, the beaver at the end of the series is very different, much more like Wally than in the beginning uh, seasons. So we can see it as, you know, a quote-unquote normative kid's development, but that a normative kid would spark so much concern shows the, the tenuousness tenuousness of the concept of normativity in the first place. Yeah, so you talk about a beaver uses women's hairspray despite the admonishment right. of a saleswoman who says not to do that. <laughs> right. 
And so here's yeah. here's where it started to take shape for me to inquire, to query, to criticize, leave it to Beaver through a queer lens is not to say that Ward or Beaver have been placed in the wrong category in terms of gay versus so-called no. straight. It's to say that the whole apparatus of category making and label assigning is called into question in its rigidity. Is that in the ballpark? Yes. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. It's it's not about going through these care these programs and pointing out characters who are or who might be gay or something like that. Uh, for the most part, they aren't there. But as you said, right, just the the process of presenting America's quote unquote normal families is always going to have these little you know moments bubbling up in the narrative that show concerns about that very normativity. And uh, you know, for the most part, these families for right or for wrong, and definitely they are not indicative of the vast uh, diversity of American families, are held up as a norm, despite the fact that they are, you know, overwhelmingly, obviously the Cosby Show is the exception, but white families, upper middle class families. Roseanne is an exception as well for uh, being a lower class family. You take a close look at Ward Cleaver, the father figure, and uh, here, too, I did not think this would be a promising exercise, but you convinced me he's one of the more interesting characters in the show. Um, he first, really is. Yeah, so yeah. first, he's, you, yeah. you see how he's a feeble beacon of, uh, of moral authority and wisdom. It turns out, right. f- you know, the, the other show is called Father Knows Best, and that that title right. can be seen ironically. So Ward turns to June and says, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing here, and June talks him through it, and he's sort of defers right. to her or, or needs her wisdom. Um, yeah. And in addition to that, you talk about the signs that he gives of being somewhat traumatized by mm-hmm. physical punishment as a child. And uh, let me read this quote there. You uh, find a quote in an episode where Ward says, my father would take me out for a little walk to the tool shed. It's amazing how just looking at that tool shed would take all of the rebellion out of me. Uh, so again, corporal punishment of children was right. not typically uh, was not unusual at that time, um, but there there are signs, especially as Ward wrestles with how to deal with Beaver, that he's he's traumatized or at least influenced in a right. problematic way by this by this past. Yeah, I mean, on, on both of those issues, I think it's really interesting to think about what we expect from a '50s '60s program, right? Again, just kind of assumptions about the '50s, but what the shows are actually showing. And, you know, in terms of the father knows best uh, theme that most people think dominates these shows, it's really not true. The father characters often do not institute the moral authority or they have trouble doing so or, you know, Ward often turns to June. He needs help. He can't figure out the boys. He needs her to kind of interpret activities. But also, you know, the other uh, topic you mentioned as well, the child abuse. It's really striking to watch the, you know, all of the seasons, all the episodes of Leave It to Beaver. And it's another recurring storyline that it really appears that Ward was an abused child, that he is somewhat traumatized by his own past. And it's only hinted at, but then, you know, proper techniques of child rearing become a question for the show to address. And, and, you know, again, we look at Leave It to Beaver today and think of it as hopelessly behind the times. But it was actually quite progressive in some ways, and some of the ways that presented June's gender roles, but also the discussion of what's the proper way to raise children. And it, uh, several episodes took a strong stance against corporal punishment. Uh, and again, with a show that ran this many seasons, you can also find countervailing threads as well. 
there are a couple where it does seem like uh, Ward would spank Beaver, but I think the majority show that he's really, really hesitant to do it. So you mentioned the run of the show. One of the things the long run of the show ensures is that it reaches syndication, which is the holy grail for right. sitcoms. Yes, but what that's syndi- the payoff. Yeah, but, but you point out that what syndication does is it gives the shows a kind of afterlife. So we can still, I believe, right. go on cable now and catch reruns or go on YouTube. And that mm-hmm. puts the show in dialogue with the present. Um, and when right. you and when you look at June Cleaver, you find that she, it actually puts her in dialogue with her own character. She would pop up on other right. shows and movies yeah. in an ironic or a critical uh, way yeah. of looking at her own character. Tell tell us about how that worked. Well, she has, I think, one of the most interesting afterlives of any sitcom actress. Uh, I mean, for a lot of actors of sitcoms, they face you know they enjoy the glory years of the program's run, but many of them get typecast and then have difficulty moving on and, you know, having professional career acting careers after the show. But June, her character, Barbara Billingsley, the actress, June Cleaver, her character, enjoyed such a strong afterlife that she was always able to get roles, but often kind of trapped in an ironic inversion of her June Cleaver uh, persona. So I think that's another way to think about how the text invites a subversive reading, right? And so... Uh, there might not have been any inclination as Leave It to Beaver to do to present uh, June parodically. Uh, it just in terms of how people watch the show after, it became too much. The housewife in pearls and the perfect dress every time, every day the kids come home from school. She she was an excessive figure, even if the show didn't realize it. And so then Barbara Billingsley was able to exploit that for the rest of her career. Yes. It's a truly great comic moments. I mean, her stint on uh, Airplane yes. is one of the best moments of the entire film, and it's one of the best comedies ever made. Yes, where she speaks jive, a sort of African-American yes. vernacular English. And yes. uh, you find this episode where, an episode of Roseanne, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, where all of these housewives from these previous sitcoms come in dialogue with Roseanne mm-hmm. and sort of confess their faults and say, yeah, you've got it right, right. Roseanne. Yes, yeah. So my, the question that that raised for me is how much were these themes there from the beginning and any 1950s viewer had them available to him or her, and how much do they arise in this dialogue with the present, with a different cultural climate, with a different set of viewers? Oh, I mean, I think you could ask that question, and it's a good question to ask of any text, and maybe that's where my you know, training as a medievalist helped. Uh, you know, we can, we can never fully recover what it meant to read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in the 14th century. We can think about it, we can theorize about it, but we can't talk to anyone from that period and say, okay, well, this is how you understood these stories. And at the same time today, I think it's important to say these stories still exist, and we can read them for our own pleasures, from our own perspective, and we can look at how they're presenting their themes, their characters, their storylines, with the you know advantage or the limitation of having an extra 600 years. And the same dynamic is available for sitcoms. It's just much more compressed because we're still, some of us uh, are still living through pretty much the entire history of TV. I mean, this, you know, it entered America's households in the 40s and 50s. So we, we are still with the first generation of television watchers. But even as we move from it, I think we'll still be able to enjoy that dialectic between what it might have meant to the viewers, of, you know, the, the first-time viewers who saw it in its initial run and subsequent viewers who bring our own new perspectives to it. 
All right, let's talk about the Brady Bunch, uh, your sure. personal favorite, you've said. Um, yes. And the yep. Brady Bunch existed to insist on sexual innocence in the face of or in the wake of the sexual revolution of the 60s and, and everything being up in the air in the 70s. So you write, quote, The Brady Bunch's innocence is rendered queer, for in its production and reception, it often broached the possibility of eroticism that its storylines appeared to so strenuously deny. So the right. the attempt to conceal or remove sexuality from the equation, starting in the pilot where the newly married couple is on their honeymoon and aborts right. the honeymoon to get the kids to join them yeah. on the honeymoon, which uh, suggests that family togetherness supersedes uh, and replaces or subsumes sexual activity. Um, and yet you say that this attempt was inevitable, uh, was, it was inevitable that this attempt would fail. Well, I think the first episode really shows that. Again, you know, the pilot episode is Mike and Carol get married, and they go on their honeymoon, but they're... And it is implied that they consummate the marriage. I mean, I don't want to over-argue this point. Uh, they have a costume change, you know, from their wedding attire to uh, pajamas. So we are, I think, meant to see that, you know, yes, the marriage is consummated. But then it immediately becomes... The marital couple can't be the focus of the story, and if their, you know, the, the immediate, uh, you know, um, absence of their children that's felt so strongly that they have to rush home, pick them up, and then even at the, the, you know, one of the final shots of that episode is Alice appearing in the doorway of the hotel, Alice the maid, with the family pets, and so it shows a very strong, you know, visually that shows very strongly visually that this show is about the family, not the couple. That it's about the family's adventures, about the family coming together, and so sexuality is going to be pushed to the margins of the show, and it does. In that episode, it's certainly pushed to the margins. And you know, thinking about what kids see, kids probably don't even register the costume change and what it might indicate. But this again is you know just kind of the the, the pleasure of watching children's literature or children's media, even when one is an adult, seeing all those things that went over your head as a child. Uh, in subsequent episodes, you know, try to, but you have six children growing up. And so storylines about sexuality cannot be avoided altogether, as, as innocent as they you know, want to make them. Yeah, and you trace how these, yeah. these characters, these children characters, um, it's just impossible to keep their sexual maturation out of the, out of the picture entirely. Right. Um, and even the fact that you have children paired from two families who are opposite right. sex the same age and there's a yeah. there's a uh, uncomfortable i think for many viewers um yeah. sexual yeah. reading of uh of possible erotic attraction between step siblings yeah. but it's yeah. there right and the producer yeah the producers actually talked about it especially with greg and Marsha, who you know the the two older ones and there's a scene where they had to film it a couple of times because it really you could feel the, the sexual tension between the actors. And, of course, that had to be removed. They had to film it so that it was back on a brotherly-sisterly level. Uh, but watching that scene, you can still just see a, a little hint of it. And, just in, you know, we were talking about uh, Barbara Billingsley in the afterlife of the Leave it to Beaver. So Barry Williams, the actor who played Greg, this is part of his post-Brady shtick, talking about how attracted he was to Marsha and to Florence Henderson, who played his mom. And so he's really parlayed his time in the limelight and lengthened it 
by uncovering all the erotic underbelly of the show that the show so strenuously tried to hide. So if any skeptics are saying, oh, this is all in your imagination, you're pulling it out of thin air, the, the producers and the actors are saying it's it's right there. It's, and and then in the, yeah. all the sequels, none of which was well-received, but the, the movies and the sequel series, mm-hmm. um, uh, many of these sexual plot lines become much more explicit and right. are portrayed very explicitly. And that seems also to, you say, that it seems to confirm the prior subtextual readings that, that we now see. Right. Yes. Uh, you can't have a family without sex, right? Uh, or maybe not all, but, you know, most families, there is uh, sex between the parents involved and generations of children and such like that. And so these shows are trying to, you know, hide the foundations of most families, and it just can't work. All right. How about the Cosby show? Um, You start by looking at first at how the show you think has perhaps gotten a little too much criticism for backgrounding its African-American cultural character or the African-American heritage of the characters on screen. Um, I, I took you to say that it should get a little more credit for introducing a little more uniquely African-American cultural uh, figures and narratives mm-hmm. and uh, even art yeah. than it usually gets credit for. Oh, I think that's true. I, if you read a lot of criticism of the show, it, it basically accuses the Cosby show of whitewashing the African-American experience, and primarily because they're wealthy. And I mean, I think that's a, a valid critique. Not all families are wealthy. But in the genre of American family sitcoms, most families are, especially 60s, 70s, 80s, middle class to upper middle class. And so just by putting the family in, a, in that milieu, it, it doesn't erase that it was very highly invested and depicting aspects of African-American culture uh, to a truly, you know, diverse audience of America in the period. So it did a lot with specific elements of African-American culture that wouldn't have been seen on, say, Growing Pains or Who's the Boss, two of the uh, white family sitcoms running concurrently. So I, I think The Cosby Show was... You know, it was such an important show in so many ways. I think it was held to an almost impossible standard of representation that it's a lot of uh, minority programs or minority actors are held to that they have to represent everything because there's so little out there. And, but they can't represent everything. They have to pick what they're going to represent. Yeah, and this impossible bind of if they represent something, it's a triumph because right. they became so mainstream. But if they don't represent right. everything, they're open to the yeah. charge that, they, that they've sold out. Well, let's yeah. talk. Let's talk about some of these queer and sexual themes that are in this show. So the Cosby Show sure. displays some frankness about um, puberty and sexual maturity, particularly when when Rudy starts to go through puberty. Um, but mm-hmm. you trace how that becomes particularly problematic when we see Cliff Huxtable, the figure portrayed by Bill right. Cosby, constantly asserting what you call a patriarchal privilege, where he uh, sees his role as to protect his daughter's sexual innocence. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about the afterlife of Bill Cosby in a second, but even without sure. that, even without that, this patriarchal privilege is, is troubling when you look back on it. I, I think so. I mean, it, it's just very interesting to watch. The show is very progressive in some ways, but uh, the, the, the characters, Cliff Huxtable is concerned, very concerned about his daughter's sexuality in a way that he's not concerned about uh, Theo's, his son's. And there's uh, many episodes where 
He's telling, you know, he's concerned about what his daughters are, how they're dressing, how they're dancing, who their boyfriends are, what's happening with their boyfriends, in a way that's just not addressed at all with Theo. And it is, uh, uh, you know, in one episode, it's suggested rather strongly that Theo is um, sleeping with his girlfriend. But then it's just dropped. It's not returned to in the next episode. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a double standard, the classic male-female gender double standard. But it's, it's interesting to see it in that uh, show, which I think was really trying to reframe uh, the African-American experience in so many ways. He interrogates Vanessa's boyfriend about their physical proximity, oh, yeah. the apple bowl in the yeah. kitchen. Who could forget that? And then this, yeah. this scene that you found that was as uncomfortable to reread as it was to watch, I think, uh-huh. when I saw it as, I guess, a teenager, where he very bluntly and, and remarkably explicitly, he and Martin, right. Denise's husband, uh, he interrogates mm-hmm. uh, Martin about whether or not Denise was a virgin before yeah. Uh, before their marriage, and uh, right. that, that's that's creepy. That's, that's creepy to read. <laughs> it's very. It's a very strange scene. The dialogue is again. It, it's not saying these things out directly, but it is you know certainly implied, and you know adults should be able to figure out what's being discussed. And I mean to the point where Cliff Huxtable does a little happy dance when he learns that Denise was a virgin on her wedding night. And so it's like the the father is successful because the daughter was a virgin. Um, So, yes, very strangely conservative sexual politics there. And you point out how this parallels a real-life issue controversy between Bill Cosby and Lisa Bonet, who portrayed Denise. Sure. And uh, she appeared in, I guess, a rather lurid movie with uh, caricatures of African-American voodoo and, and uh, that were highly sexualized. Um, mm-hmm. And so there was this metatextual controversy going on, and then it, it seems to get played out on the show itself? It, it really does in some strange ways. Uh, and, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious what Lisa Bonet was doing. She was trying to escape uh, typecasting and preparing for a post-Cosby career so that people would not just see her as, you know, as Cliff, Cliff Huxtable's daughter. So the movie was Angel Heart, and uh, it's a it's a horror movie where uh, the investigator is Mickey Rourke, and he has to travel down to New Orleans to figure out what's what's happening with all these dead bodies and such like that. Uh, but it's a highly eroticized role, and so it does not mesh with her uh, with the the role of a Huxtable child. And so there were all of these, you know, discussions in the media, and Bill Cosby weighed in and said, you know, that she didn't ask us permission, she didn't need to ask us permission for this, that she's, you know, a grown woman and that she can make her own choices. At the same time, she is gradually moved off the Cosby show. And part of that was her spin off A Different World. But it was really striking that she didn't come back for the final episode. It just seems like that's the moment where the family of a family sitcom, we should see them all together one last time. But but we don't. She's, you know, not part of the family by the end of the show's run. 
All right. In recent years, our consideration of The Cosby Show has been completely flipped on its head with the revelation that Bill Cosby was, according to multiple allegations, a serial sexual predator. Um, He was recently convicted on some, but just a small fraction of the charges uh, that have been Mm -hmm. leveled against him. Um, So here not only was, and we knew knew before that, that, that Cosby was taken to sort of moralistic scolding about sexual uh, promiscuity and lack of sexual discipline. Um, But now the, the hypocrisy is, is overwhelming. How, how does that add to or, or deepen our uh, queer critique and inquiry into the Cosby show? Well, it's a really great question. And, you know, on a one level, the answer can be, it, it doesn't have to, right? I mean, the shows are still the shows. And so what we've learned about Bill Cosby doesn't, change the text. So to go back to that surface just versus symptomatic reading, the surface is exactly the same. And so uh, I think that's worth stating that the show was groundbreaking in so many ways. I mean, I think the show did so much good in so much way, so many ways that I would hate for the Cosby show itself to be lost in the controversy of Bill Cosby and what he was doing about, you know, in his personal life during the show's run. At the same time, I definitely think it invites multiple symptomatic readings about the, the hypocrisy, about how, how power represents itself, right? That power is, people in power are able to hold these hypocritical views and to shield themselves from them for a very long time. And so the vision that we, we now know that Bill Cosby was not flexible, but we should have always known that, right? I mean, we should always know there's a gap between the actor and the uh, performer, but that's one of the, um, the, the, the lures of the family sitcom genre is that so many of the actors kind of become compressed with their roles. So I think it's, it's, it opens up the Cosby show to a much deeper range of critique. And it was actually one of the challenging things about this chapter is I was writing it as the story was unfolding. And so in many ways, uh, at a, on a certain level, you want your book to go to press and be done with it. But on the other hand, I was like, oh, I, I don't know if this is, is ready to, to go yet. There might be more to say about it. And so in the end, we did go to press. But I think there's still more to think and to analyze about that disjunction between you- Cosby and, and his show. Well, if if I could push that for just one more minute, and then we sure. got to get onto the yeah. other shows. But so yes, we should have known there was a gap there. We should have known that Cosby does not equal Huxtable, and yet I think you suggest right. that Huxtable does seem to be a very intentional avatar of Cosby's uh, moralizing of everything mm-hmm. he had written, and even in the way in which the uh, Huxtable uh, Denise relationship paralleled the Cosby-Bonet relationship, right? Um, wasn't Cosby inviting a very close reading of Cliff Huxtable with himself? I, possibly. I think that's a really interesting point to make, you know, and again, it's just, it's going to be determined by the, the depth of the reading that the viewer undertakes. And so, uh, you know, viewers who want to remain on the surface certainly can. But the symptom, I think, is really interesting to, to plumb the, the depths of the distinction between uh, the actor and his role there. So he was definitely cultivating a, pers- a public persona that in no way reflected what was going on in his private life, which is very disturbing. 
but I mean, it really boils down to as well. Sometimes a hypocrite can nonetheless say true things, even if they don't believe them themselves. <laughs> so, or don't enact them, right? I mean, that's what makes hypocrisy so challenging to work through is that a lot of those nice little moral lessons that were encoded in the Cosby show are good little moral lessons, as is the case with so many sitcoms, right? Cosby show and all the others I've looked at this book. The the you know, it's a it's a very moralistic genre and a lot of those are actually sure, good little morals for kids to learn. Yes, Cosby himself should have aspired to be so moral. Yeah, as... Exactly, exactly. You know, well. All right, so Roseanne comes on the scene as a very direct rebuke to previous sitcoms, including, I guess, The Cosby yeah. Show, a very frank portrayal of marital sexuality, of teen sexuality, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and of homosexual marriage. I was struck in looking back. I mean, this is the early 90s, right? And they show a gay couple. Mid-90s. Okay. Yeah. A, a gay. This is before mm-hmm. Ellen, which is seen as sort of a watershed. And there's a right. um, an episode with a gay marriage. What role did right. that play, that, that gay relationship and that gay wedding play in, uh, in the show? Uh, it's, it's a one-off episode, uh, so I think we could say not very much in itself. But Roseanne, you know, works, was, was quite determined to have gay roles and gay actors. And so, you know, she mentions how proud she was that she had Sandra Bernhardt as an actress you know, playing a queer role before Ellen uh, came and had Ellen DeGeneres came on with Ellen. And the Martin Mull character who plays her boss, another gay character that was on for for many episodes. And so I think her show was very important for just normalizing queer characters. They're just part of the fabric of the family's life. Uh, It's interesting, right? They're not in the family, but they're among the family's friends. They are, you know, seated around the kitchen. And in a lot of episodes, when people express discomfort with homosexuality, they're the ones who are the problem, not the gay characters. So, the, the yeah, the Roseanne show was quite progressive on a lot of gay issues. Yeah, the so, initial run of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, so, so Roseanne puts this all out there. I was curious how does Roseanne fit in with the others? I mean, Roseanne names what the others refuse to name, but she see, her mm-hmm. show seems like an outlier in that regard. How do you see this as fitting into uh, your overall inquiry here? Uh, I, I think it was marked a real changing point, and so that's why it was uh, a good show to have. Basically, the setup of the book is I wanted approximately one uh, exemplary specimen from roughly each decade, and so Leave It to Beaver, roughly 50s, 60s, Brady Bunch, roughly 70s, Cosby Show, 80s, uh, Roseanne Star in the late 80s, ran through most of the 90s, Hannah Montana, the 2000s, and Modern Family more recently. But any breakdown like that, there's going to be overlap among the decades. But Roseanne, I think, in terms of the history of the family sitcom, and not just the sitcom per se, right? Uh, other sitcoms had addressed queer issues before. But within a, the family sitcom genre, hers is really the first to so vocally address issues of gay identity. Can I ask you quickly about, this might take us sure. a little bit of, uh, away from your book, but the afterlife of mm-hmm. Roseanne. She was recently fired after a racist tweet right. after the show had very successfully been rebooted. And it struck me, so in your um, summary of the original Roseanne, you talk about how the show was uh, anti-Reaganomics, anti-corporation, yeah. pro-union. Um, and mm-hmm. so in that sense, it would be identified as democratic. 
And now its re, its reboot, its uh, revival was seen as signifying the triumph of the Trump voter. Right. Um, and I right. wondered, it could it be that the show itself didn't change much, but that society shifted around it? And what does that tell us about the political and socioeconomic context? Right. I'll first confess I did not watch any of the new episodes. <laughs> I had no idea it was going to be on and off so fast. I was planning on it, but it never happened. But uh, it's it's a really striking change that the show was so pro-union, pro-democratic, and just and 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 not quiet about it either. I mean, it took some really uh, made some really strong statements, and not just against conservatives, but against republicanism specifically. And that's very rare for a family sitcom to do. Really, for any sitcom, for most sitcoms, I shouldn't say any, but most sitcoms want to appeal across the political spectrum. They don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, independent, whatever, watch the show, keep the ratings up, and then they cash their paychecks. So that Roseanne was not the program and the the actor uh, was not at all hesitant to insult Republicans was really striking for her show in the 90s. So for the reboot, again, I didn't watch it, but it's, you know, she does uh, turn into a Trump voter. I, I don't really have that much insight into it since I didn't watch the episodes, but it is worth noting that a lot of union households from the 80s and 90s did end up voting for Trump. So, you know, in some ways, is it reflecting just the, the you know, trend, uh, trajectory of American, some American blue-collar workers? Yeah. All right. Hannah Montana. This is the show I admit sure. I identified with the least uh, and I saw the least <laughs> I'll, of. I'll admit that that too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I needed a, uh-huh, I needed a show from the 2000s. And so my niece had watched this. Uh, yeah. So I've seen a couple of episodes with her and then watched uh, many, many, many more. So the show has a uh, normal teenage girl, Miley Stewart, right. played by Miley Cyrus. Mm-hmm whose alter ego is a pop superstar, Hannah Montana. And even yeah. just in having sort of an alternate identity, uh, there, there's sort of an allegory there, I think you say, for uh, for coming out. And so um, even before we get to the afterlife of Miley Cyrus, um, just in that storyline, there was something that gay viewers could identify with? I think so. I mean, there's there's something about the double life or the undiscovered identity that often speaks to uh, a queer audience, even if a text isn't specifically queer. So, you know, another, I think, good example is Harry Potter. I mean, Harry is obviously straight. He ends up with Ginny Weasley by the end of the series. But there's something about his alienated status at the beginning of the books and then being discovered and introduced into another community that's much more interesting than the muggle community. I think that kind of can allegorically can speak to queer audiences. And so for Hannah Montana, the whole idea of the double life, where you're not recognized as the the glorious real you that you are, except in this other world where you can uh, tap into that. So you happen to have picked shows where the stars have really uh, newsworthy afterlives, (laughs) including (laughs) including Miley Cyrus, who has... uh, since come out, assuming that she's making sort of a Lisa Bonet-like attempt to shed the uh, restrictions of this uh, role she played as a teen, but she had a very su- sexually suggestive performance at, I think it was the MTV right. Awards or something like that, Yeah, and she has called herself a pansexual. And mm-hmm. I guess, according to your account, this was happening roughly in conjunction with the final season of the show. How did that get played into the show, or how was it played in the show? 
Well, it was allegorized in the show. In the show, uh, Hannah Montana, the, the superstar, admits her secret double identity. And so, and it, of course, doesn't really make that much sense, but her fans are shocked and they can't believe that, you know, she hasn't been telling the truth to them all this time. And her aspect of that allegory is that she wants to, you know, make more uh, grown-up, less bubblegum pop music. And so there's lots of discussion in the final episodes of the show that she has to be true to herself. She has to follow her musical calling. She shouldn't answer to focus groups, but to her own sense of what's musically right. And so then that becomes the perfect allegory for what's happening to uh, Miley Cyrus in her real life as she's moving from uh, you know, a, a family sitcom, but one specifically directed toward the younger end of the market, right? It's more a kid's show directed that, that has some appeal to, you know, parents or older siblings who watch it with the, their younger siblings or, ch- or children. But then, you know, what she's doing is, in, in real life, is much more headline-grabbing, we'll say, than what's happening in the show. But it works on a perfect level, to bring the viewers of the show in, along with her as she transitions into a more adult-oriented, well, that has certain connotations that I don't mean to hit, uh, but it, moving into, uh, you know, more mature media. And so she uses that character to voice her defensiveness, saying, "Let me mm-hmm. leave me alone, let me be me. Yeah. yeah, and she has Dolly Parton voice it for her, too. Which was just brilliant in one of the episodes because Dolly Parton plays her uh, godmother, and well, so uh, talk about someone who knows how to work the media, who knows how to appeal to all sides of the cultural divide. Dolly Parton, there's no one better for that show to use to promote that message. Well, and you made a fascinating note about the casting of Brooke Shields as the character's mm-hmm. deceased mother who appears in flashbacks. And right. Brooke Shields is an actor who, I don't know if I knew this or had forgotten it, was uh, controversially in some very sexually Gary. suggestive teen films, The Blue Lagoon. Mm-hmm. And there's even a conscience reference to that in the name of uh, Miley Stewart's horse. Tell us, tell right. us about that. Uh, Miley Stewart's horse is named Blue Jeans, which suggests to me, I mean, I don't think it can be coincidence, that uh, Brooke Shields, infamous Calvin Klein's, uh, blue jeans commercials where it was a very erotic image and i'm not sure how old she was at that time but but young and she purrs nothing comes between me and my calvins and it was a really shocking ad for the early 1980s uh for its you know commercialization of a you know I'm, again i'm not quite sure how old she was but i'm pretty sure adolescent girl sexuality and so it just works on so many levels to have Brooke Shields play the mom. And what's actually even more interesting is how Brooke Shields has been able to have a successful career. Yeah. Uh, she's one who hasn't been typecast. And I think one of the ways she's done it is rejecting that past uh, hypersexualized youth. She's much more uh, now playing mom characters or her Sudley Susan character in the 90s. Uh, leaving it behind for kind of a every woman image, and it's again, it's interesting how the show itself seems to consciously reference that where a place right. a place where they could have chosen to try to ignore it. Uh, they seem sure. they seem to use that uh, that name, Blue Jeans, very uh, intentionally. Yeah. Yep. All right, Modern Family. Uh, this is um, this seems like the ultimate triumph of subversive 
subtext uh, that were lurking in these sitcoms. And yet you trace a, a wide strand of scholarship and of criticism that says, let's not give the show that much credit because after all, yes, it does have a gay married couple, but they are made to conform to 50s era expectations and stereotypes in every other way. Um, And and you push back against that criticism and say, well, no, they they do need a little more credit than they get. Uh, Tell us about that controversy and your take on it. Well, in some ways, it's very similar to the pressures on the Cosby show in the 80s, that some people criticized it for its depiction of an African-American family, but it can only depict one. It can't depict all. And so I think something similar happens uh, to that with Mitch and Cam's marriage in Modern Family. We have a gay married couple on TV, but there was a lot of backlash against it from the queer community saying, well, they're very conservative. Uh, the, the The term homonormative comes out, and that term is used, you know, well, I think more often disparagingly than not to refer to gay couples who uh, just kind of reflexively take, you know, straight culture as their paradigm. But it's it's one married couple. They can't do everything and be everything that any viewer suggests. And so when you start to look at the show, sure, there's some things of their relationship that could be considered normative or as emulating uh, straight marriage. But there's lots that really troubles that. There's lots more idiosyncratic flourishes to their relationship and also just how the series changes over its arc. And one of the, the one of the ways one of the critiques of the show was that Cam wanted to be a stay at home dad. And some viewers saw this as, you know, uh, just replicating that 1950s model. But that's not how that's how the storyline started, but it also showed Cam becoming incredibly frustrated as a stay-at-home dad and actually going to work at the local high school. Where he coaches football. Yes, where he coaches football. Yes, exactly. I think that's one of the challenges of television criticism is that a lot of times people want to make statements about a program, but when you do it before it's over, you're really shooting in the dark and you don't know how the show is going to end. And I myself am guilty of that because, again, this book had to come out eventually, and I was not going to wait however long for Modern Family to end its run (laughs) before publishing this book. So I looked at the first five seasons, but it's gone on several more and has just been renewed for several more. So some of the things that I say about the show might not be accurate by the end of its run. Yeah, but if you did wait for the end of the show, it it could be a long wait. I know. And there are moments, perhaps I should just refer listeners to some of the pictures of scenes that you include, but you talk about moments where characters are put in kind of slapstick positions uh, that are sexually suggestive uh, that seem to address uh, heterosexual anxieties about the sexual mechanics Mm -hmm. of of sex between same-sex partners. Um, And so there again, it seems that the show is very consciously and very intentionally uh, attempting to address these these questions that are lurking that particularly right. heterosexual viewers have. Right. Yes. The the question: What do gay couples do at that? And so there's, you know, again, uh, uh, anyone listening, just get the book and look at the pictures. There's all of these images where you know uh, the male characters are put in these unexpected poses that then would uh, resemble sodomy. So. The show is showing you it knows the answer to that question. At the same time, it allows that question to be asked repeatedly. It just becomes one of the running gags. And again, for these, you know, uh, for the family sitcom, 
the humor can work on different levels. And so kids might not quite get what's being implied, but the adult viewers uh, certainly should be able to figure it out. So as we said, and as we said with the Cosby show, the show mm-hmm. is, a, is a triumph because it mainstreams a non-traditional family structure, in this case, a gay couple, and yet it will never be accepted as a full triumph because in some ways it tries to acquiesce to certain norms, although not as much uh, it, you find that it actually uh, goes further than many give it credit for. So let me ask about where sitcoms go now, and uh, ha- has Modern Family broken the mold, or has it... Uh, reinforced a mold that we will continue to see um, play out uh, in different ways and different forms yeah. uh, as the sitcom continues to unfold? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, the, the short answer is time will tell. <laughs> we'll have to see what happens and watch these programs. But basically, from the beginning of television history, the family sitcom developed as one of the most resilient genres of the medium. And I don't think it's going anywhere. And so as families change, as our conception of what the American family changes as well, so too will the sitcoms about them. And, and TV, I think, is in some ways a um, predictive uh, medium and in some ways a regressive medium. Sometimes it's hesitant to be ahead of the curve. Sometimes it sees uh, real benefits of being ahead of the curve. And so a show like the Brady Bunch, which I think was really trying to put the brakes on cultural change in a lot of ways. We can think of that in contrast to Modern Family, which I think is, is fine and is with cultural change and is more about showing just how diverse the American family can be. Uh, you know, keep, keep your eyes on that screen, kids. <laughs> that's, the, <laughs> that's the message because uh, we're, we're certainly going to see variations and permutations of American families in future sitcoms that we're still not seeing, but I'm fairly confident they will come. Well, Tyson Pugh, this is a fascinating uh, treatment. I don't see how anyone could resist reading a book called The Queer Fantasies of the American Family Sitcom, and I don't think anyone should resist that. So really enjoyed the book. I hope you're right. Yeah, well, we'll see. But it is an eye-opener. Really enjoyed the book and really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Tyson Pugh is the author of The Queer Fantasies of the American Family Sitcom, published by Rutgers University Press. Pugh is professor of English at the University of Central Florida. He is the author or co-author of several books on sexuality and literature, including Precious Perversions, Humor, Homosexuality, and the Southern Literary Canon, published by Louisiana State University Press in 2016. I'm Nathan Bierma. You've been listening to New Books and Communication Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.